From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Americans have long admired the resistance, tenacity, and spirit of those brave souls who were travelers and conductors on the Underground Railroad. On this week's PreserveCast, we're heading back to those days to dredge up another chapter, and one far less proud, that of the reverse Underground Railroad, which brought captured, formerly free blacks, back to slavery. It's a difficult history, but one we must confront. And we'll explore it with Dr. Richard Bell, a distinguished scholar who recently authored a book on this overlooked but important story from American history. Now, before today's episode, I want to ask you to consider making a quick donation to support this program. PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization, and during difficult times like these, every dollar helps. Your support keeps us on the air, making the case for the value, relevance, and importance of history in our lives, and we greatly appreciate it. To make a donation, you can visit PreserveCast.org and hit the donate button in the upper right-hand corner of the page. Thanks again for all your help, and keep on preserving. Now, let's get to the episode. Dr. Richard Bell is Associate Professor of History at the University of Maryland. He holds a PhD from Harvard University and is author of the new book, Stolen, Five Free Boys Kidnapped into Slavery and Their Astonishing Odyssey Home. He's won more than a dozen teaching awards, including the University System of Maryland Board of Regents Faculty Award for Excellence in Teaching, the highest honor for teaching faculty in the Maryland state system. He has held major research fellowships at Yale, Cambridge, and the Library of Congress, and is the recipient of the National Endowment of the Humanities Public Scholar Award. He serves as a trustee of the Maryland Historical Society and as an elected member of the Colonial Society of Massachusetts and as a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we're very excited to be joined by Dr. Richard Bell, an associate professor of history at the University of Maryland. And we're going to be talking about Dr. Bell's newest book, Stolen, Five Free Boys Kidnapped into Slavery and Their Astonishing Odyssey Home, and really talking about sort of this broader implication and story here in the Mid-Atlantic and American history. But before we do that, it's great to have you here. So let's start to get to know you a little bit better. Where did your fascination in this aspect of history and American history come from? What was your path to being a scholar of American history? Oh, well, one of the first things I think your listeners might notice uh, about me from hearing me talk is that maybe I'm not actually from Maryland itself or from (laughs) the United States more broadly. Uh, I'm British by uh, birth and I hope by sense of humor um, as well. Uh, I was born in North London, grew up not too far from London and went to college uh, just outside London. And um, in the UK in the 1980s, and I'm not convinced it's any different now, um, the study of America history, either in a K-12 environment or in college, was really an afterthought. I didn't do any American history, uh, or colonial American history for that matter, um, in high school. And I went to college as a medievalist, medieval Europeanist, and really enjoyed that, but eventually ran out of courses. And uh, this would be something that might resonate with some of your listeners, that I was looking around for one more course with three more credits. You know, I needed to graduate. Um, And it so happened that the professor teaching colonial American history had a course that met at the right time. Uh, So 
I went and took that uh, course and completely fell in love with colonial American um, history. That had a lot to do with the skills of the professor, whose name is Betty Wood, who's recently retired from Cambridge University. And she was interested in ordinary lives, in social history, in cultural history, in the history of African-Americans and the freedom struggle in America. And I was completely hooked. Uh, so I ended up writing a senior thesis on American history with her, which caused me to go and live in Richmond, Virginia for three months, one very hot summer, uh, doing research. And uh, then I, when I applied to go to graduate school, it became clear to me that this was the path I wanted to, to pursue, American history. Um, so it was a relatively easy decision at that point to go to America to do it. Um, so I got a PhD in the US thinking as I was doing it that as soon as I was done, I would go back to the UK and try and look for a job teaching American history there. And of course, the job market says uh, otherwise, right? The job market said those opportunities to teach American history are actually very few and far between outside of America and in the UK specifically. Uh, and so I was very fortunate to uh, grab a job in the United States. Uh, I'm speaking to you today from my office in College Park, where I'm a professor of history at the University of um, Maryland. And I've been here about 13, 14 years. And I should also say that in graduate school, uh, I met the person who's now my wife, who is uh, a bona fide American. She's from Missouri, for goodness sake. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't get much more American than that. You know, right? Growing up <laughs> London, you never, you never imagine you're going to be spending the rest of your life uh, with a sweet country girl from Missouri. <laughs> so, was there always a, a passion for history before you even went into college? Was it? Did you grow up going to historic sites? I mean, albeit very different than the ones you're researching and writing about today. <laughs> but was that sort of part of your upbringing too? It was, it was, and it wasn't. Um, uh, my dad certainly has um, a sort of armchair interest um, in some aspects of British um, history. He's, a, he's a fascinated by Captain Cook, the uh, 18th century um, explorer. But no, really, um, what turned me on to history as a discipline um, was something that happened in high school. And it's eerily similar to the story I just told you about college, which is that I was not interested in history. I was actively bad at it for many years until I got a change of teacher and a new teacher came into my life in what would be, I think for you guys, maybe ninth grade or something like that, um, whose way of teaching um, really connected with me as a pupil, as a student. He was able to invest his own hopes um, in you and to make you want to um, um, exceed those expectations. Um, I found that a really effective teaching device. It's not nearly as manipulative as I'm, as I'm making it sound. Um, and that drove me into his subject. Uh, so uh, I've never looked back. I've had a succession of wonderful teachers, David Hopper in, in high school, um, uh, Betty Wood in college, and Laurel Thatcher Ulrich uh, in graduate school who have changed my life in wonderful ways. So let's let's talk a little bit about your most recent book. And I'm, I'm I guess, I guess I say most recent, um, and we can talk a little bit about the other things you've published on. Um, but you know, I, I think for the listeners, they should know that I, I actually endeavor to read any book that um, we uh, talk about here and any author that we interview. And and I must say that that you know, listeners should pick this up. It is a fascinating read. It is extremely well written and very easy to read. Um, and I guess I, I should say it's easy, easy prose. It's difficult to read because it is very difficult, challenging history, particularly like 
I mean, you don't have to be a parent, but just to be a parent and think about a child being torn away and kidnapped and sent to slavery. Um, but the, the title of the book, as I mentioned, is Stolen, Five Free Boys Kidnapped into Slavery and Their Astonishing Odyssey Home. Um, it's discomforting. It's powerful. So let's unpack it a little bit and talk a little bit about this. Where did the impetus come to write this book? How did you come across this story? And, and at what moment did you say, wow, I really have to explore this in, in detailed book length? It's, it's a great question. Yeah. So I hope listeners keep in mind the full title because it does a lot of work introducing the subject matter. And it is, again, Stolen Five Free Boys Kidnapped into Slavery and Their Astonishing Odyssey Home. Um, Back in 2011, I was finishing up my previous book, uh, which was about something very different. It was about suicide between the revolution and the civil war. I'm clearly drawn to very dark, sobering uh, topics, although I'm a very happy, optimistic person. Um, and as I was finishing that up, I came across a newspaper from 1829 um, uh, covering a news story happening in rural Delaware, which alleged the suicide of a woman in her late 60s who was in a jail in rural Delaware facing trial for, I think, three counts of murder. And her name uh, was Patty Cannon. Uh, most people I meet, that name doesn't mean much to them, but I meet people on the eastern shore of Maryland and in Delaware today who are well aware of who that is. Um, I was not aware of who that was. Uh, this person, Patty Cannon, the name meant nothing. As I dug into the circumstances of her death to figure out whether or not she committed suicide or whether or not she belonged in my original research project, um, I discovered that the circumstances of her death were the least, um, for lack of a better word, fascinating um, aspects of her long life. She had spent decades, a career really, as the co-leader of one of the most fearsome gang of kidnappers and enslavers anywhere in 19th century America, a gang of um, criminal human traffickers based out on the eastern shore of Maryland, right near the Delaware line, um, who spent decades um, sending mercenaries into nearby cities with significant free black populations, notably Philadelphia uh, and Baltimore too, to grab free black adults and children most especially with the intention of dragging them into the deep south, meaning Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, to sell them as if they were slaves to slave buyers who didn't care that they might be legally free uh, and that their freedom might have been stolen from them. I knew nothing of this. And over the next, uh, I guess, eight or so years, um, I worked on this woman and her career intensively and began to focus in on one particular kidnapping case in which she and her gang um, had uh, committed from 1825, four years before her death, in which five boys, um, African-American, um, young, uh, the eldest was 15, the youngest was eight years old, were kidnapped in the space of just a few hours from the streets of Philadelphia, hustled onto a small ship bobbing outside the city uh, on the Delaware River, um, briefly warehoused for a while in Patty Cannon's house near the Delaware line, and then marched overland on foot most of the time from um, Norfolk, Virginia, uh, across Tennessee and into Mississippi and Alabama, where they tried to sell these five free boys as slaves. This story and stories like it, it turns out, Nick, happened over and over and over and over again. I'm waving my hands on the right. Zoom chat we're having here to emphasize just how often this occurred. 
um, in the early 19th century. And we can discuss why that was. Um, but the point is, it happened over and over again. And I was no, no, I had no idea of this. In my scholarship and in the book Stolen, I refer to this phenomenon of the kidnapping of free African-Americans from within the United States for the purposes of selling them in the South as slaves as the reverse underground railroad. Uh, it was big business, and I wanted to tell one story which would illuminate the larger phenomenon. Yeah, and it's a story that I don't, I mean, the, the Underground Railroad obviously is something that, I mean, that is like drilled into American children's head starting as, you know, as early as, I mean, I, I'm, I'm reading stories to my four-year-old about the Underground Railroad and Harriet Tubman, and for good reason, right? Um, but Americans are not as familiar with this idea of sort of this reverse Underground Railroad. I'm curious if you, if you coined that term, and I'm also curious how extensive was this sort of return to slavery pipeline? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so for the record, I did, did not coin the term reverse underground railroad. Um, you can find a Wikipedia page with that title, which predates me by several years. Um, so I probably heard the term on the internet where it's relatively common in certain um, chat groups and so on. Um, but I am trying to sort of, I guess, mainstream um, this uh, term because I do think it does useful work because it reminds us um, of the great um, risks that enslaved African-Americans um, undertook to liberate themselves from slavery and how the freedom of um, African-Americans in northern cities could be stolen from them and people could be dispatched into slavery, whether they were fugitives from um, slavery, like one of the five boys in my story, or whether they were card-carrying, holding their papers, legally free uh, African-Americans, which was just as common, if not more uh, common here. We're talking actually about kidnapping not usually about slave catching or anything um, with a murky legal uh, basis here. This is kidnapping. Um, and yes, I don't think we know much about that these days. And so one of the goals of this book is to recover, preserve, and, and reconstruct this history and set it alongside the history of the Underground Railroad, um, because both things happened over and over again. In fact, one of the most troubling findings in my book is that the scale of what I call the reverse Underground Railroad was, to the best of our ability to tell, roughly equal to the scale of the Underground Railroad, which means, you know, every year in the first 60 years of the 19th century, Hundreds, if not thousands, of enslaved Americans would risk everything uh, to achieve freedom on the Underground Railroad. And over the same 60 years, hundreds, if not thousands, every year uh, of free black Americans had their freedom stolen from them by kidnappers and traffickers like the Cannon Johnson gang. Um, there's probably lots of obvious reasons why we don't already know this or properly appreciate this. Number one is it's not a happy story. Do you want to read this story to your four-year-old? Um, I have a four-year-old. I have a seven-year-old. It's hard to talk about what I do for a living uh, with them. Um, but it's important that we do. Um, it's also true that as a criminal enterprise, often led by very sophisticated um, uh, outlaws who knew the law and how to get away with it, the paper trail of sources, of pieces of evidence in surviving legal records like 
trial transcripts or police files is often pretty slim because most of these kidnappers got away with it most of the time. And that doesn't produce the rich legal record um, that we see in other in other contexts. And so I think even though it's in sight, uh, it's, it's hard to reconstruct. Well, and I was going to say, I think you make the point in the book that um, after, and you say, you say it elo- more eloquently than I will, but but essentially after after the after the Civil War and and after slavery is over, this is not something people are publishing about and are proud of. Like you know, people who were conductors on the Underground Railroad, this is something to celebrate, at least per- particularly in the North. Um, but this is not something people are you know they're not going to go out and publish a memoir and say, wasn't it great how I you know, captured free black people and dragged them into misery in the deep South. I mean, that's not really a story you want to tell your grandkids. I mean, I guess it's the same way that a criminal enterprise or that, you know, human traffickers today probably are not going to be writing memoirs about their, their wonderful time, um, you know, doing that kind of evil work. That's exactly right. And there's one more aspect to this we might just underline. And that is, I think, you know, too often we tell ourselves a story about American history. And I'll just pause to say, notice I used we there to refer to Americans. I've been a U.S. citizen for the last uh, two years. Um, uh, We tell ourselves these stories about American history, about how, uh, about the evil of the slave south and therefore the goodness of the free north um, in the decades between the revolution and the civil war. And the reality, of course, is that life for legally free African-Americans on free soil in northern states like Pennsylvania and Massachusetts and New York and New Jersey, wherever it might be, was... Uh, not honey and roses, right? You could be legally free and yet face a barrage of daily racial discrimination, which could prevent you from getting a job, prevent you from finding a spot in any sort of school um, uh, for your children, prevent the police from being reliable allies to you when something um, uh, went wrong or was done to you. This is the sort of life under siege that free black Americans lived in northern towns and cities like uh, Philly or anywhere where there was a major free black community. So that was include Baltimore, Maryland as well. Um, and so this story, which shows how fragile the freedoms even of legally free African-Americans could be, I think sort of complicates the idea that there's a, a good North and a bad South, a safe North and a dangerous um, South. For African-Americans, Philadelphia was probably one of the most dangerous places to be free and black anywhere in the United States. Yeah, I mean, it seems like from what I've read, and I'm curious what you would have to say about this, that perhaps the safest place to be would be Canada. I mean, literally getting out of the United States. Would that be a fair assessment? I mean, you you hear about these um, communities in southern Ontario um, where free blacks eventually get to because the pressure in the United States is so bad. Yeah, I wouldn't really dispute that, though I don't claim any particular expertise on, Cana- on Canadian history. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that there's uh, it's more complicated than it seems on the outside. But as a general point, I think that's fair. Uh, and we should also note, um, however, that Canada is not on the radar right away for fugitive slaves. Um, we tend to think that, you know, from the year dot, um, from 1781, from the end of the American Revolution, that American slaves who are trying to escape uh, American enslavers are headed for Canada. Uh, and that's most true 
after 1850, in the wake of the Fugitive Slave Act, when it becomes very obvious that the federal government is going to jeopardize the legal freedom of, um, of anyone who's black in any northern state, and there's nothing that state legislatures can do about it after 1850. Uh, but turning to Canada is, I think, a gradual phenomenon. We see more and more uh, fugitive slaves making for Canada in 1820 than we did the decade before, in 1830 than we did the decade before, in 1840 than the decade before, and so on and so on. So that by 1850, the incontrovertible truth is that the safest place in North America is not in the United States, uh, as you say. But that's a transitional uh, phenomenon, I think. Yeah, I'm probably revealing a little bit of my bias. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and so the uh, the story the story of the Underground Railroad and abolition is is well rooted in crossing the Niagara River. There, um, and I'll, I'll just I'll just uh, interject here Nick, to say that I've been working on a, a lecture about Frederick Douglass. Um, uh, uh, speaking of Harriet Tubman as a great Marylander, I admire. There's uh, I, I, the same same goes double for Frederick Douglass born in Talbot County in, in 1818. And um, one thing I was only dimly aware of that my research uh, for this lecture I'm giving brought to light was that Douglas himself was someone who, as an abolitionist, didn't just um, uh, talk the talk, but also walked the walk. When he lived in Rochester, um, New York, um, he turned his own business and his own house, along with his wife, into a sort of safe house for the Underground Railroad. And he wrote that at one time there were 11 fugitives under his roof, and uh, historians including David Blight, who wrote this amazing new biography of Douglas, uh, estimate that in the course of the 1850s alone, Douglas and his wife Anna uh, probably sheltered about 400 fugitive slaves, all of them on their way to Canada. Very interesting. Well, why don't we take a quick break here, and when we come back, um, we'll talk a little bit more about this and the research process that went into this book, um, and we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit ballotandbeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about August Chazelle, a leading African-American suffragist who provided essential civic training to Maryland women after the passage of the 19th Amendment. Read by Casey Roan, the primary researcher of Maryland's historic context statement on the state's suffrage legacy. Augusta Chiselle, Club Woman for Suffrage. Before the suffrage movement, the women's club movement began to lay the groundwork for women's newfound political engagement. In the mid to late 19th century, American women formed thousands of social clubs dedicated to self-improvement through literature, arts, and culture. Gradually, many clubs turned from inward-facing social groups to activist organizations. White and Black women in Baltimore formed numerous and mostly separate women's clubs in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Both addressed similar community issues, such as improved schools, childcare for working mothers, and housing and medical care for impoverished people. 
In addition to these concerns, club women in Baltimore's African-American neighborhoods also grappled with the threat of Jim Crow laws and the city's adoption of the nation's first residential segregation ordinance in 1910. Clubs and civic organizations fostered women's leadership and organizing abilities. Some club women embraced the suffrage movement as the natural next step. Augusta Chissell was a civic leader in West Baltimore who embodied this progression. She held leadership positions in the Women's Cooperative Civic League, a club which addressed issues of housing and public health, including food and dairy purity, clean air, and refuse disposal. This position gave her close neighborhood ties and valuable connections that she could later draw upon as an officer in the Colored Women's Suffrage Club, organized in her neighborhood in 1915 by Estelle Hall Young. Giselle hosted suffrage club meetings at her home on Druid Hill Avenue, and after the passage of the 19th Amendment, authored a column in the Baltimore Afro-American entitled, A Primer for Women Voters. With her column, Giselle advised women registering and planning to vote for the first time. Readers wrote in with questions like, what is meant by party platform? And where may I go to be taught how to vote? In response to this, she directed readers to attend the weekly meetings of the Colored Women's Suffrage Club held at the local Colored Young Women's Christian Association, which had been organized just for this purpose. In the years following the passage of the 19th Amendment, Giselle continued her community leadership. She remained engaged in the Cooperative Civic League, chairing signature events like the Flower Mart, and served as a vice president in the Baltimore branch of the NAACP through the 1960s. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're joined by Dr. Richard Bell, an associate professor of history at the University of Maryland. And we're talking all about his new book, Stolen, Five Free Boys Kidnapped into Slavery and Their Astonishing Odyssey Home. Before we took our break, we were talking all about sort of how you got into this book, how you stumbled into the story and Patty Cannon and just the extensiveness of um, this reverse underground railroad. Um you know, I think I mentioned to you as as we signed on before we started recording that the book is it's so well written that it almost reads like fiction, um, and uh, there's such vivid detail. So I'm curious. You know, normally it seems like these stories, um, from what you've said and what we've discussed, are very difficult to document. How how were you able to do that? How long did it take? Were there particular resources that you came across that just made this story unfold in the way it did? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I began with the couple of historical sources of which historians were already aware. So there was a small packet of letters to or from the mayor of Philadelphia, a man who'd eventually become involved in this case quite significantly um, and who helped to achieve the return to Philadelphia of some but not all. Uh, of these five boys. You remember the subtitle of my book is Their Astonishing Odyssey Home. Some, but not all of these five boys will liberate themselves, which is a wonderful, uh, makes for a wonderful second half uh, of of a book, which opens with darkness, obviously, which opens with kidnapping. Um, So I began with some letters to or from the mayor of Philadelphia, and I began with coverage of the disappearance of these boys in a single anti-slavery newspaper that took an early interest 
in it. And to be clear, historians have known about those two sources for a long time. But on their own, they were too um, too thin and too few to sustain a whole book-length reconstruction as a reason no one's ta- ta- tackled this before, right? Um, so I had to go digging around in any archive I could think of for new sources that maybe when stitched together could flesh this all out. Um, I spent about six years of my, my life digging around for these sources, and there were a lot of days where I felt like I was finding nothing useful, nothing new. Uh, you know, if you look for needles in haystacks, you find a lot of hay before you find any uh, needles. I'm sure that's familiar to all of your listeners who have done genealogy or other types of history. Um, and But if you keep at it, you do start to find those needles. And in the course of about six years of research, I think I found more than 100 new sources about this case um, buried everywhere. I think I was in 35 different archives in 14 different states and in D.C., in DC. Uh, uh, including many archives in Maryland, because there's a significant Maryland component to this um, story, and a Delaware component, and a Philadelphia component, and a Mississippi component, an Alabama component, and a Massachusetts component. Um, I'm not going to list all these hundred sources, but just to give you a flavor, Nick, of what I was able to find, um, I came across, with the help of another historian, um, the handwritten notes of a trial that took place down in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, that would decide the fate of one of these five boys, um, the fate of a 10-year-old boy named Cornelius, for the rest of his life. Would he be forever free, which is what he was legally entitled to, or would he be forever slave? A jury of white Alabamians got to decide that. Um, I came across something I thought I would never find, which is two letters authored by one of the members of Patty Cannon's gang, describing some of the roles of different gang members, naming some names, and then minimizing his own role in the gang to the point that it was non-existent, which is to say that last part was a lie. Um, And I'll just name one more. Um, I came across pretty early in the research um, something in a newspaper that was put there by one of the children's fathers. And it's a missing persons ad. Uh, it's on page eight of my book. Um, it un- runs under the headline, Boy Lost. Uh, uh, and it describes um, one of these boys, Cornelius, actually, um, in vivid, loving detail. Uh, it shares with readers um, the parents' suspicion bordering on certainty that he's been, I'm quoting now, seduced away by some evil-minded person with the purpose of enslaving um, him. And it's begging for information of any sort to ease the minds of what they refer to in the ad of his afflicted parents. Uh, You were talking about uh, being a dad yourself. I'm a dad, as you know. Um, um, Afflicted parents... Um, that seems like the understatement of the century to describe what uh, free black uh, mums and dads must have been going through when their young children, eight years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, disappeared and they suspected, usually correctly, the very worst. Yeah. And 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 which also suggests that this was as per- pervasive as you were describing, um, because you talk about in the book where... Um, adults in these communities often oftentimes knew what to avoid and, and where not to go, and that's why they turned to children. And that I think you you talk about how Solomon Northrup, um, which is five years or tw- excuse me, twelve years a slave, um, uh, is is sort of an anomaly. Actually, um, to, I mean he is he is a well-to-do, um, literate, um, 
you know, adult African American male, and that is that is very very unusual um, based on what you found, and and which speaks to this fact that these parents kind of knew what probably had happened. Yeah, this is well at the time we were talking about how we don't know this story nowadays, but at the time everyone knew this was happening. This missing persons ad, boy lost, is one of. Uh, dozens, hundreds, if not more, of similar missing children stories, placed notices placed there by black parents whose children have been kidnapped. And they often say that explicitly um, in, in these ads. Uh, everyone knew this was going on, uh, even though most white folks in positions of political power certainly chose to do nothing um, about it. Um, so adults are certainly trying to live their lives on guard to make sure that they don't fall victim to the sort of ruses that Solomon Northup would as a 30-something-year-old man in upstate New York in 1841. And kidnappers get smart to this as well. Kidnappers um, turn to kidnapping children, um, number one, because there is actually a surprisingly robust market um, for um, younger people under the age of 16 as laborers and domestics in the Deep South. But number two, because adults, um, free black adults, are getting wise to this. And children, by virtue of their youth, naivety, and inexperience, um, are just not as on their guard uh, as their parents are. So their parents live in constant fear that their children will be lured away, decoyed, or, you know, physically carted um, away. And in the case of these five boys, um, the kidnappers used, uh, I think, two different strategies, if I'm remembering. One of the boys has to be physically dragged away into a cart um, with a black gag put in his mouth um, so that he can be silenced while he is carted away. Uh, but the other four boys are sold um, a bunch of what Joe Biden would call malarkey um, about there being some fruit um, in crates on a nearby ship that needs unlawful loading um, and the work will take you an hour. You kids, you look hungry. How does 25 cents sound for an hour's work? Why don't you walk with me around this corner? And these these kids, four of them, um, um, make the mistake of trusting that particular individual and going around the corner and walking onto the ship. And that's when they figure out um, they've made a tragic mistake. Yeah. Yeah. And, th- and this whole idea of, of capturing African-Americans too, I mean, I by by background, I was a, a park ranger at Gettysburg, um, and there, there's a there's a very large story of this even kind of continuing into the war, and the 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 Confederate Army becomes this, um, you know, in addition to being an army out there to preserve the institution of slavery, is rounding up there during the Gettysburg camp for, campaign, for example, hundreds if not thousands of free blacks during their incursions north. So it doesn't really, it doesn't stop until the Civil War ends. And it and it seems like during the Civil War, it reaches this crescendo where they're just rounding up as much as they possibly can, which I guess suggests that, you know, as, as to what we're talking about here, this was well known and this was a thing that you did. And it reaches this this crescendo. And I don't know if anybody is is looking at that or if you kind of delved into that piece of this story at all and kind of how it comes to its conclusion during the war. So, so um, I, I don't. In fact, I tend to spend more time thinking about the legacies of this particular case and how it moved things like the anti-slavery fight um, forward. But you're right, this does continue up through the Civil War and perhaps beyond as well. We should think more about um, that because generally we're too quick to assume that the Civil War stopped everything bad in American history. Um, 
But you're absolutely absolutely right. And there's some great recent work, which I just draw your listeners' attention to. If they want to learn more about the phenomenon of kidnapping free blacks outside of my book, Stolen, there's a, um, a slightly older book by Carol Wilson called Freedom at Risk. Uh, and there's a, re- a more recent book by the Georgetown historian uh, Adam Rothman called Beyond Freedom's Reach, uh, A Kidnapping in the Twilight of Slavery, I think the, um, the subtitle is. That would speak to your questions here as well. Um, in my book, in Stolen, I spend a lot of time thinking about how this particular kidnapping of these five boys changes things. And in many ways, it changes things for the better, or at least um, it reminds African-Americans of just how common these threats to their freedoms are if they needed any further reminding, and many did not. Uh, It emboldens them to embrace violence in the cause of their own self-defense and mutual protection as almost never before in American history. it shapes the larger anti, uh, anti-slavery movement by um, focusing abolitionists' attention, especially abolitionists who could then write their own pamphlets and speeches and books, etc., on the suffering of black families being ripped apart by, by kidnappers but also by slave traders and by slavery itself. And the separation of families, as you know, Nick, becomes a major theme in anti-slavery writing in the second quarter of the 19th century. And this particular case leads to a change in the law in Pennsylvania uh, to toughen up anti-kidnapping punishments. And that's a law uh, that enrages Southern slaveholders and pro-slavery forces more so than almost any other state law passed in the North before the Civil War and sets uh, a snowball's chain of retaliations um, into motion, which culminates ultimately in the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. So there are serious, important consequences that spin out from this seemingly little um, case of these um, five boys. And the five boys do all sorts of things to make these things happen. They are in some ways the protagonists and the central actors uh, in my book. So there's there's obviously a profound significance and legacy you know, during that period, even during the lives of of these children and and later, um, why why do you feel like it matters today? I mean, it, it matters in a variety of different ways, I can imagine. But um, in in light of the challenges that are going on today, and you know, we're recording this on Juneteenth, and so this 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 question of how we remember slavery and how we make it you know, an important moment in the, in the minds of Americans to this day. Why does this part of the story matter? That's a, that's a great question. And timely, as you said, yeah. Um, hopefully we in America have been staring slavery in its face for a long time now. Uh, I don't think we've done as good a job at staring white supremacy, um, in the face and recognizing that slavery was just one expression um, of racial oppression. And while slavery was outlawed, while race slavery was outlawed uh, at the end of the Civil uh, War, um, white supremacy has never been uh, dismantled and has gone on to take many 
um, insidious um, forms after the Civil War. I'm thinking here of, you know, sharecropping. I'm thinking here of the convict lease system. system. I'm thinking of Jim Crow era segregation. I'm thinking of the war on drugs and mass incarceration um, and our present, um, our present crisis regarding police um, uh, brutality. Uh, I think we should be uh, recognizing these things as part of a pattern of racialized um, domination, which contributes to uh, intergenerational trauma amongst African-American uh, communities. Um, and the people, our fellow citizens, um, and I'm, an, I'm a white guy, uh, our fellow citizens can uh, can live in fear that the basic freedoms that I take for granted in this country can be readily uh, trampled. Um, uh, and that is what we see with the um, African-American community in Philadelphia in the 1820s, that their legal freedoms are trampled, in this case, by kidnappers um, with obviously no respect uh, for um, the law. And the separation of families of an oppressed population um, is not something either that's been confined to the pre-Civil War period, right? Um, I think the Black Lives Matter I think that families belong together, uh, and I think what was happening and what may still be happening at the southern border of this country uh, over the last few years is also uh, evidence of the work that lays ahead um, for all of us committed to uh, anti-racism. Yeah. It's a powerful statement. Hard to add to that. I am curious, since we are a preservation-themed and focused podcast, um, how do you feel about preserving sites associated with this res this reverse underground railroad? And, and are there any that you're aware of that have been protected, preserved, or even documented? I mean, the, the Cannon Gang, for example. Um, should we, you know, we, we've gone to great lengths um, for good reason to document the Underground Railroad. And we have Underground Railroad byways and a Harriet Tubman National Park that spans several states. And um, that is all profound and important and a, and a big step forward in the way we tell and preserve the story of slavery and American history in its totality. But what about this aspect of it? It's, it's a really hard one. Uh, it honestly is. And I'm an historian, um, so I'm naturally biased to want to lean into the business of preserving um, historical sites and artifacts from America's past and to be confronted by them in the American landscape um, at every uh, turn. Um, in this particular case, so many of the sites of the reverse Underground Railroad do no longer stand and certainly were not actively uh, preserved or commemorated um, because we tended to put this um, in the dustbin of our memories, I think, as a nation for a, lot, for a long time. Um, one exception to that, we talked about Patty Cannon earlier in the podcast, um, Nick, uh, the co-leader of this particular gang, and one of you know dozens of these gangs around the United States in that period. Um, the house she purportedly owned and lived in um, is uh, stands at a crossroads uh, right near the Maryland-Delaware line, uh, near the town of, I think it's Seaford, uh, to use its current um, name. Um, and there is an historical marker uh, of the type you imagine in your mind um, outside saying this was Patty Cannon's house. Uh, she did various things. Uh, there's two problems, unfortunately, with that particular attempt at historic commemoration. Um, number one, the site, that it, the, the building, which is marked out as Patty Cannon's house, was built in the 1880s, 50 years after she was she's, she's dead, and is definitely not the house uh, that the marker thinks it is. 
Um, and the marker itself uh, is far more fast, is far more interested in, I would say, romanticizing or glorifying her career as a transgressor of gender norms, as a sort of super strength um, Amazonian Jack the Ripper. There's a sort of weird fetishistic interest the marker seems to take in the horrible violence uh, she participated in, which I find very um, distasteful. You can see that same vibe in the nearby Seaford um, Historical Society Museum, I think it's called, where you can see a sort of animatronic Patty Cannon rocking back and forth in a rocking chair and cackling. Um, it's really very, very creepy. So on... Um, uh, I'm going to try and have my cake and eat it here and say that I'm all for historic uh, preservation um, and interpretation. Um, I, I just wish it was uh, at the highest professional standards. Yeah, and I, I, you know, and I think that that speaks to the way that we've interpreted these stories writ large. I mean, it's not just Patty Cannon, but it's it's the t the totality of of how we tell this story. And you know, the National Trust for Historic Preservation and Preservation Maryland, for that matter, talks about telling the full history, um, and that 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 involves telling it in in such a way that doesn't border on romanticizing or fetishizing um really strange and dark history and that's important too um so what's next for you what are you working on now and if people want to learn more about you or they want to buy the book um how can they do that uh, thanks for that. So, uh, yes, I have a professional uh, website. Very easy to find me. It's richard-bell.com. Um, and there's details there about how to uh, contact me. If anyone out there would like a signed copy of the book, uh, very easy to purchase one through me, uh, through that website, richard-bell.com. Um, you can also find it, obviously, in all sorts of bookstores everywhere you look. Um, I'm working on two new projects uh, right now, though guess what? Progress has been slightly slowed by the global pandemic, let me tell you that. Um, I'm working on two projects. One is a um, short study of a person called Elizabeth Jennings, who lived in New York City in the, in the 1850s, and like Rosa Parks a century later, uh, refused to abide by contemporary transportation segregation policies and got on a streetcar she was not supposed to uh, and ended up in a legal battle to try to achieve urban transportation desegregation in New York in the 1850s. Uh, I'm trying to work on her, and I'm also working on a larger book um, about uh, slavery, anti-slavery and the railroads and i don't mean metaphorical railroads reverse underground railroad underground railroad i mean real railroads here thinking about how railroads spread slavery how slavery spreads railroads and also about how enslaved people used railroads to achieve freedom and how the anti-slavery campaigners in the north like frederick Douglass, used the spread of railroads to spread their message wherever they could interesting yeah, I guess you don't really think about the railroads and, and their interconnection with that. I, I don't know if I'm familiar with too much published on that, so that definitely is interesting. You know, send, my, send it my way because I'm in the early stages and want to make sure I'm not reinventing the wheel here. Well, right, and, it, and, it's, and, it's, and it's intertwined with the story of American expansion westward, which of course is you know directly confronting, um, are we going to be a half-slave, half-free, where does slavery expand? And, and the railroads are following that right along out west so that's very interesting um final question most difficult for most people uh your favorite historic place or site oh my goodness i'm gonna go totally off the wall because there's nothing to do with anything we've talked about today nothing at all good um, uh, my favorite place on earth is also an historic site uh it is the royal national theater on the south bank of the river thames 
in uh, London, uh, not too far from where I grew up. It is um, a brutalist uh, building built in the architectural style of massive slabs of concrete at weird angles. Uh, many people find it hideous. There have been calls to tear it down and build something more pleasing ever since it opened, I think, in the mid-1970s um, as a three-theater complex uh, presenting the nation's uh, theatrical uh, uh, culture uh, to Londoners and to the world. Uh, I go back there whenever I uh, can, and I've fallen in love with the building, not so much for the architecture, but because of what it represents, which is um, state-supported embrace of the rich traditions of um, British culture and, and global culture. And one of the things that I'm struggling with hardest as we navigate this endless lockdown um, is the fact that all the theatres are closed, all the theatres are struggling, and so many of my, my friends in the artistic uh, community have been thrown out of work with uncertain futures until live performance um, comes back. Um, I live for live performance, I live uh, for the theatre, and the uh, brutally ugly building on the south bank of the River Thames, the Royal National Theatre, symbolises all that and more uh, for me about what I miss about being fully alive. Well fantastic way of putting it and and just a, a great interview full of unique contradictions the uh, Brit turned American history scholar who studies uh, the antebellum period but loves brutalist architecture I mean <laughs> I, what a, what a perfect way to end this um, uh, Rick it's been a, a pleasure talking with you today and so glad to have you on preservecast looking forward to reading what you write next Cheers Nick. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.